started. So welcome everyone to teachingamericanhistory.org and the Center for Civic Education's We the People program are pleased to present this sixth se session webinar series. We the People, a foundation for teaching the U.S. Constitution. Teachingamericanhistory.org is the leading online resource for documents, lessons, multimedia, and programs for teachers of American history, government, and civics. TAH.org's programs are unique in that they are all focused around primary documents only. Tonight's program will consist of a presentation of roughly 45 minutes, followed by a question and answer segment. I will take notes of the questions posed in the chat window throughout the program and will ask those of Dr. Lloyd after his presentation. So as you're watching and come up with questions, please post them in the chat window for everyone to see. Um, you can send them to the host or Ashbrook Center one and I'll be able to take note of those. Everyone will be emailed a continuing education certificate verifying your attendance in each session. There's no need to do anything and you'll receive this certificate within a week of the session. Finally, if you're interested in graduate credit for attending all six of the sessions, you can do so by writing a lesson based on at least two of the documents Dr. Lloyd uses during the series. Please email Jeremy Gipton, whose email is now in the chat window, directly for more information. The presenter for this series is Dr. Gordon Lloyd, Professor Emeritus at Pepperdine University and Senior Fellow at the Ashbrook Center. He is one of the leading scholars of American political thought, and Ashbrook is proud to have partnered with him to build the nation's leading online resource on the American founding at teachingamericanhistory.org. Dr. Lloyd, thank you for joining us tonight. The floor is yours. Well, Kelly, it's a, it's a sad point. We're going to be ending this uh, sixth session together. And one of the things I'm hoping is that a number of people have managed to stay the course, so to speak. And as we come to the end, to be able to bring questions from the beginning and the middle to bear on the end. And that's, I'm, I'm going to encourage folks to do that so that when we get to the question and answer period, uh, we could maybe try to integrate some of this material rather than it having to stand alone as six discrete, unrelated um, <clears throat> uh, hearings. All right. As in the past, Bob has given us a guide, and the guide is the state hearing questions. So let me go through briefly. And part of the reason for me going through this briefly is to sort of remind myself of what is going on here to, to so that I can so that I can focus. The, there are three questions. And that, that, that's standard. And then within each question, there are two sub-questions, and that's standard. There's nothing new in, in, in this particular uh, module. Um, units or, uh, unit. unit six has the following question to consider. What challenges might face American constitutional democracy in the 21st century? Now, I would have thought that a very important question, if we go into the units, would be to what extent is the judiciary a protector or a challenger of American constitutional democracy? And another unit would be in terms of to what extent has the executive acquired a certain degree of power 
which changes the nature of American democracy in the 21st century, which might be unrecognizable to people who lived in the even in the 20th century. And another one would be why is Congress in such bad shape with regard to the to the views of the people? And what are the states supposed to do? So when I when I see that extremely important uh, question, what challenges might face American constitutional democracy in the 21st century? I think the judiciary, the executive, the state of Congress, and the role of the states. But that's not what we're invited to consider. I have no criticism. I'm just saying as we go through this, this is part of learning, right? We learn what it was anticipation and what do you see? What what's unexpected? And so it's unexpected is that so we go to the first and we have a quote. Uh, by the way, I want to I, I, I look last week for Bob to tell him that he was correct, that I did not notice the fine print on the Hamilton, uh, Lee Hamilton citation. He was absolutely correct. And I, and I, and I missed that one. And uh, so I'm being more careful. See, one learns. Democracy is not the default form of political organization. It requires a high degree of citizen understanding and participation to work well, even under the best conditions. End quote. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? Why or why not? And it is a quote from Robert Maddox, Constitution of the World in 2008. Now, I think that's a very interesting question. And it goes to the notion of what, what, what I had thought about, namely, you just can't think that what who, whoever the, whatever the people do a poll it, that's not going to work it requires a high degree of citizen understanding that's what what i think bob and and, and the rest of us would call or let me just take it put it on me not on bob civic education what is civic education it is being educated in this in the community in the city in this in the in the civics of of, of the community that doesn't mean to say there's a uniformity. It means that we understand who we are and where we're going and what the appropriate questions are and what the appropriate range of answers might be. And we can still disagree. So yes, democracy is not just something that happens. Because we're democratic doesn't mean to say that we're automatically decent, good, and kind, and not prejudiced. So what does it require to be not we means that we are not prejudiced to the extent that we can. We are kind. We're not intemperate. But what does that take? It takes two things: civic education, and it requires the, constitu the, the, the constitutional arrangement that I had described, namely an understanding of the separation of powers, the role of the judiciary, etc. We're a flawed people, not just Americans. Humans are flawed, living in a flawed world. And so to expect flawlessness, it's just simply, it, it, that's, what, that's what our kids expect. That's what our students expect, but we need to, we, we, they'll, they'll soon learn and then they'll get weepy. Look, what does citizen understanding mean? It means how is the constitution framed? 
What were the arguments about it? What does separation of powers mean? Where does commerce fit in? Where does religion fit in? Those are the vital questions. And, and it requires, I mean, you, I don't think there's a general theory of citizen education. Why? Because of the word citizen. Citizen actually particularizes you. It places you in a city, a citizen. So that I don't think, I mean, that Keynes wrote about a general theory of, of, of employment. Yeah, maybe there's a general theory that doesn't, it doesn't matter where you live and what century you live. This is the, these are the causes of unemployment. It, it, it may be true. It doesn't matter where you live and in what century you live. If you have a clock and you drop it, it'll fall. That's a general theory. That's a law. But I'm not so sure that that operates when you talk about civics. Civics is related to a city, and it requires an attachment to the city. And that's where we get into trouble. Is an attachment to the city automatically prejudicial, propagandistic, uh, or is an attach or jingoistic, or is pride, a love of country, a love of city, a good thing? Like love of one's parents or love of one's family or whatever. So I think that the idea of citizen understanding is understanding that you are located within a country that has a history. It's not perfect, but it's located within that. And you need to understand it. Okay. Why is it important? I think I've just described why it's important. Because you're not even the most individualistic person is not born an individual. They're born into a family and their diapers are changed, for goodness sake. And people are grown into a family. Maybe some are abusive, some are such and such. But you're not born simply alone. You're born into some kind of community, and yet it is special. So that to, to abstract from the notion that uh, we are not a citizen, to abstract from the idea that we do not belong to a certain country is ridiculous. That I don't see how we could become, well, not in my lifetime anyway, a citizen of the world unless Mars inv invaded us to, to, to create that kind of worldwide citizen feeling. In what ways, if any, are citizen understanding and citizen participation uh, related to one another and required for democracy to work? Well, I love this question. First of all, there's a distinction, which I think is extremely important. I mean, to ask the question, how are they related, only follows because you have distinguished them, unrelated them, or separated them, and then required for democracy to work. I think those are the two issues that are so important. One citizen education, and two, citizen participation. Now, why do we separate them? Well, I think first involves is learning, and the second one involves doing. And if we look at our life, we should learn before we do, rather than do before we learn. But if we just learn and not do, what is the point? We have to do. Because particularly if it's civic education and not simply mathematical education. So I think that this, this sub-question is extremely important. It raises, I think, the most, 
one of the most important educational questions that teachers have to deal with today. And that is, is it possible to have both civic education and civic participate, participation and blend the two together? It seems, it seems to me that what is happening more and more is a sort of a John Dewey understanding that you don't really need to read the past. You don't really need that kind of education in what people in the past did, what Washington did, what Madison did. Why? Because the past is gone. So what does matter? Sort of internships, being involved. Being involved in what? Well, how does one understand the 1% in Wall Street? You go and, according to civic participants, you go and you watch what they do. And then you bring it home and somehow you say, well, I have participated in civic action and now I understand. But I think it would be equally interesting to compare and contrast Wall Street um, antagonists with Chase Rebellion and and Whiskey Rebellion and other things and other activities which have taken place both within the United States and, and foreign countries as an intellectual exercise. Um, and so I think what is necessary is an intellectual exercise and, um, and an active exercise. But if you act without knowing, then it's just dumb. And if you know without acting, then you are withdrawing. And that's a challenge of our times. So I kind of like the first question and the sub-questions because I think it does deal with the challenges that might face American constitutional democracy, not only might, but do face American democracy in the 21st century. There are activists all over the place and there are people who think that we are, our, our, our children are becoming more and more stupid. And so I think that's the issue. It's not just a question of how, how we test them and, and no child left behind. But the real challenge for educators is, it seems to me, in the 21st century is to, it, 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 it's to deal with this paradox of civic education and civic participation. All right, I like that question. I think it's really related to the whole five sessions we've done before. However, when I get to the next question, I get a little confused because, okay, so here's the question. When Eleanor Roosevelt urged the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the United Nations in, in 1948, she insisted that, quote, this universal declaration may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere, unquote. And there is an asterisk. And I'm being careful now. I'm reading the fine print from Jill Lepore, Rule of History, Magna Carta, Bill of Rights, New Yorker, April 20th, 2015. Very up to date. It's... Uh, obviously re relevant because of the anniversary of Magna Carta and then closing, closing in on the Universal Declaration of White Rights. So that's the, that's the context. Eleanor Roosevelt, New Yorker comment, etc. And so here's the question that deals with it. 
and what ways are the Magna Carta and the Universal Declaration alike? In what ways are they different? Good question. Um, I'm tempted. I'm going to. No, I'm not going. I'm not going to resist temptation. I'm going to go with the two A and B sub um, sub points that try to flesh out for this year what is going on. And it's a, it's a very very straightforward good question. How are the ideas in the Magna Carta and the Universal Declaration related to natural rights philosophy? And the second one is how are ideas in the Magna Carta and the Universal Declaration related to classical republicanism? It's a lot for us to consider. We have 10 minutes to do it. I'm trying to do like 10, 15 minutes on each and then leave it open to questions so that you can do it. So let me try to be bold here. How are the ideas in the Magna Carta and Universal Declaration of Rights related to classical republicanism? I don't see it. I, I just do not see the connection at all. Magna Carta dealt with feudalism, lords, monarch, gunnut head, monarch, you're not acting reasonably. We're not asking for Republican government. We're not asking for classical republicanism. We're just asking for you, for you to be reasonable. And here's how we think you should be reasonable. And here's how we think you are being unreasonable. Uh, important? Yes. Why is it important to Americans? It's written down. Is that important to Americans? Yes. Is it important to the British? Not really. So we open up a question. Why is writing things down so important to Americans? But we get beyond ourselves. But we can we can start asking that question. Okay. So something is written down in Magna Carta. What is the idea behind Magna Carta? Because they ask, how are the ideas in Magna Carta and Universal Declaration related to natural rights philosophy and classical republicanism? What I'm saying is that I don't think that in either document that are related to classical republicanism. I think that Magna Carta is an attempt not to bring, to bring republicanism, classical or modern, but to make a monarch behave. It's not an attempt to change the form of government whatsoever from a monarchy to a republic. And as a consequence, I, I am pushed to see how uh, Magna Carta is related to classical republicanism. I can certainly see how Magna Carta is related to trying to make government of whatever kind limited. But that's not the same thing as classical republicanism. As far as universal declaration of rights limited to classical republicanism, I think it has even less to do with classical republicanism. Uh, Universal Declaration of Rights is incredibly repetitive. Uh, it doesn't appeal to anything fundamental. It's an assertion. And, it, it, and, and here's my point. To show you how it's not related to form of government, whether it be republicanism, modern or... See, republicanism is a form of government. And monarchy is a form of government. So the question that is being asked is, to what extent are the ideas in the Magna Carta and the Universal Declaration related to a certain kind of form of government, which we might call classical republicanism? And what I am suggesting 
is that there's no challenge to the form of government under Magna Carta. That is, it can be monarchy. We just want reasonable monarchy, not a change in the form of government. And if we take a look at the Universal Declaration, it's really amazing. You have all the countries in the world that range from communism to socialism to capitalism to everything, different forms of government coming to an agreement and declaring universal declarations, which implies that we don't need classical or modern republicanism as a form of government in order to make a universal declaration correct. And I find that an amazing claim. It, um, an amazing claim of, of 1948 to say that the form of government doesn't matter, that you can have a federation, a United Nations made up of socialist, communist, even proto-fascist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they can all come together and declare human rights. And it doesn't matter what form of government we have in order to secure those rights. That's a remarkable claim. And I think it ought to be a, uh, to be investigated by the by you, and I would hope that in our question and answer period that you you know you 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 raise questions about that. So that I think covers me with classical republicanism. How is it related to the doctrine of natural rights? Well, you know, I find this very interesting. I, I, I really do, because I think that Magna Carta, in some fundamental way, precedes natural rights. Natural rights is 17th century, 18th century, and, and, and sort of peaks in the early 19th century. And then by the time you get to 1948, it is gone, or it is in wobbly, a wobbly state, a wobbly situation. So the, high, the, the, the highlights, the days, the... The, the apex of the doctrine of natural right is somewhere between Locke, 1688, and maybe oh, through slavery and into the beginning of the 20th century. That's the highlight. So we're talking about asking the question, how are the ideas in the Magna Carta and the Universal Declaration related to natural rights? Chronologically, Magna Carta preceded natural rights, chronologically. And I would also say that, nat that Magna Carta preceded natural rights conceptually. That is, this talks about due process. It talks about restraining the government, particularly the king, through disclosures and this, that, and the other. But it doesn't talk about elections. It doesn't talk about frequent and fair elections. It doesn't talk about the form of government. It talks about reasonable conduct. And it doesn't appeal to natural rights. It appeals to due process of law and fairness. I don't mean to say it's not important. The question is, how, how is it linked to natural rights? And I'm thinking it's more related to due process of a procedural nature. That is, how do we proceed in life? I would actually suggest that the Universal Declaration of 1948 is, is, instead of being before natural rights and being procedural due process, is after natural rights and is substantive due process. And by substantive due process, I mean that people are entitled to things that, that, is, that are substantially not just they're entitled to 
the right to counsel and the right to a jury and the right to a proper and fair procedure and the right to bringing evidence. Yeah, they have a right to certain content. They have a certain right to human dignity, to a job, to all sorts of things, which I would call substantive due process. Neither of those two documents really appeals to natural rights. And however much we might not like natural rights, and as a lot of people who don't, obviously, I think that one of the key words in natural rights is the laws of nature and nature's God. And however we might want to interpret God, that's a metaphor, that's a whatnot, God is mentioned. God does not appear in the human, in the Universal Declaration of Rights of 1948. There is, God might as well be dead. So that whatever the foundation is for the Universal Declaration in 1948, it is not God, it is not a foundation, it is not out there to be discovered. In fact, I think it's more willed. It is more willed by what it means to be humanity. And so I, with all due respect, disagree with Eleanor Roosevelt when she urged the adoption that she insisted that Universal Declaration may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. Um, I would say that she's forgotten or left out the important part of the Declaration of Independence, which appeals to natural right which neither Magna Carta nor the Universal Declaration appeals to, um, even the French Revolution appealed to natural right. So I find it uh, rather uh, disappointing to see the quick sweep over natural right in uh, Mrs. Roosevelt's uh, commentary. And then in what ways are the Magna Carta and the Universal Declaration alike? Well, they're alike in the sense that it doesn't really matter what the form of government is. That the form of government is not important for securing rights. In what way are they different? Uh, the Magna Carta is 12, 1200s, 13th century. It's feudalistic. You can see by the language. Uh, Universal Declaration of Rights is socialist. Or it is certainly inspired by that. And if you read the document, um, you, will, you will notice the extent to which um, it's, it includes rights that are derived from government. For example, human rights include freedom from fear and from want. Now, that's not a natural right. Freedom from fear and want is an expression of a hope or a dream of human uh, capacity that somehow governments are responsible for bringing about, regardless of the form, which I find to be very interesting. Um, it seems to me that a lot of this Universal Declaration is an expression of, of the will of, um, uh, by the way, very interesting that, that, that there is no notion of the pursuit of happiness in Magna Carta or the Human Declaration. Of, of rights, nothing about human, that, that, that it is the pursuit of happiness. Liberty plays ex, an extremely unimportant part 
in Magna Carta and in human rights, in, in, in the Declaration of Rights, in the idea of individual human liberty. Um, it, it, it's, it really is amazing reading this for uh, after so many years. Uh, no God is mentioned, no government is mentioned, no specific form of government. Um, uh, what, what, what do I want to mention? Um, there are a couple of, of, of odd things. Article 17. This is the first and last mention of property. Everyone has the right to own property alone, as well as in association with others. No one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his property. That's it? So what has property got to do with anything? And who's to, win, and who's to secure this? Certainly not a form of government. Um, they're, so, so, they're, so they're confusing things like that. Uh, and then in 21, the will of the people shall be the basis of the authority. Not the judgment, not the choice, but the will. The will of the people. Um, and this notion of everyone and entitled and a right to social security. That's a whole different understanding of rights, which you don't find in Magna Carta, and you certainly do not find in the natural rights philosophy. Entitlements, guarantees, securities are not there. And now, one might argue that the 1948 Universal Declaration is far superior to the Declaration of Independence and Magna Carta. And one might say, and I'll show you how it's superior. And it's superior because it talks about securing freedom from fear, freedom from want, the freedom to have an education, the freedom to have a right to work, and that everyone has the right to just and favorable remuneration, a fair day's pay. It has the protection of labor. It has the, and, uh, and, and it also goes so far as to define what the content of education is. I mean, you could defend that, but the question that, that the state hearing questions are asking me is, or, or you, is not so much is it superior, but asking how are the ideas in Magna Carta and Universal Declaration related to natural rights, and I've tried to show you not much. Now, how are the ideas in Magna Carta and Universal Declaration related to classical republicanism? I'm saying even less. If we had a third question, which is not asked, do you think the Universal Declaration is superior to Magna Carta and Declaration, and why? Then we could have a different we could have a different conversation. But that's not what the questions were, and I'm trying to help you focus on what the questions are. I find that finally, with regard to the to the notion of the Universal Declaration. If you take a look at Article 26, it says, it deals with education. Everyone has a right to education. All right, fact, the same level of education, the same kind of education. Everybody shall receive a classical education. I mean, what is that? What is, that's, that's amorphous to me. But number two in Article 26, education shall be directed. In other words, not just saying that we have a right to education, but here is what education is going to be. And if you ask this question, to what does the Magna Carta have to say about education? What does the Declaration of Independence say about education? I do not think you will find this similar answer. Here's what the Universal Declaration says. Education shall be directed to the full development of the human personality. 
I have no idea what that means, but let us say that somebody does. And to the strengthening of respect for human rights, fine. And fundamental freedoms, fine. So that's what a purpose of an education is. Is that a civic education or is that a civic participation? Or we could go back to our first question. Education shall promote understanding, tolerance, and friendship among all nations, racial or religious groups, and shall further the activities of the United Nations for the maintenance of peace. That's education. Someone might say, well, excuse me, that's a particular kind of education. Yes, it is. But it's a particular kind of civic education. Yes, it is. It's to become citizen of the world. You know, this is what is really interesting to me. The 30 articles which are done here, to me, are written by people who think that they have covered everything. That here are all the rights that we need to cover. We've covered it all. But it is absolutely interesting to me, 50, 60 years later, looking back, there's not one word of homosexuality, not one word of transgender. That it would have to be adapted so this universal declaration of rights does not even conceive of some kind of, of uh, right of humanity. But I'm not arguing in favor or against. I'm just arguing. I'm just trying to say, I mean, what is a declaration supposed to do? What is a constitution supposed to do? This declaration of human rights is supposed to settle for all time, as Eleanor said. This is, I mean, this is the most important document, she's saying, since the Magna Carta. All right, take her seriously. So what then is it going to say? But even it, too, is short-sighted, apparently. If we fast forward 50, 60 years, it's nothing to deal with with, with with certain groups. All right, enough. Final point. So I can, I can talk and leave for a second. So go ahead. Sure. Does somebody want to talk? I, I wouldn't would answer directly. I can't. I, should I continue? Go ahead. You want me to continue? The third, no right is more precious in a free country than that of having a voice in the election of those who make the laws under which, as good citizens, we must live. It seems to me that's a very, very reasonable point to consider. Other rights, that's, that's becomes provocative. Other rights, even those most basic, are illusory if the right to vote is undermined. And the citation following again, um, Bob Lemming's advice to read the fine print from Hugo Black, Westbury versus Sanders, 1964. So there is a very interesting conversation going on here between one, two, and three. Number three seems to place an incredible emphasis on the form of government. That is, the form of government should be one in which elections take place and that elections are important for the rule of law. Number two, with Eleanor Roosevelt, seems to suggest that the rule of law is much more what we agree upon as a nation, that there's certain kinds of civilized conduct and the form of government really doesn't matter. Number one, democracy uh, requires some help. 
raises the very interesting question of what help? Does it need the help of people getting involved? Or does it need the help of people being informed? Or does it need the help of being both informed and being involved? I like question number three. I like it because, because it, it, it turns us away from the abstract notion that the rule of law implies courts securing our rights to getting us back to the notion of question one, which is to what extent are we ourselves responsible for securing our rights, both by A, being educated and B, being involved. To rely simply on the courts is that we're not being educated because it's too because it's too complicated, let the courts decide. And B, we don't need to be involved because we have the courts to decide. So I love number three because it really raises this question of civic education and civic participation. Other rights, even those most basic, are illusory. I won't go so far that the right to counsel, the right to free speech, the right to to um, uh, uh, conscience, the right to no cruel and unusual punishment, a lot of those rights that are traditional that we might find in the Declaration of Independence, I wouldn't consider them to be illusory if the right to vote is undermined because they can still be protected. But I think that Hugo Black's point is is really sharp for this whole this whole session, um, because he's putting he's putting the emphasis not on experts, not on abstract notions, but on the people themselves, and and, and how important it is the right to look. The right to vote involves civic participation, and one would hope that exercising the right to vote through civic participation requires one to be civically informed. And that puts really the whole emphasis on the, the on the folks. So the question is, do you agree or disagree with this opinion? As my as I have done in the past, I've tried to be fair to both sides, but I have no hesitation in giving you my opinion in order to provoke questions because you need to work with your students. Uh, on these kinds of things. Do you agree or disagree with this opinion? I agree. I think this that this statement is extremely important and actually more important than uh, Magna Carta and the uh, human rights in the United Nations in 1948, because it also presumes, it also presumes that people can take care of themselves and that it presumes that the form of government, namely an elected government, is critical. There is not an elected government in Magna Carta. There's not an elected government under the human rights in the United Nations. And, that, uh, and, and, and so I really like this question because it fleshes out. What do you consider to be the most important landmarks in securing the right to vote for all Americans? Well, I, I think that's a continuing issue. I don't think that all Americans are going to be secure once and for all. I, 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 um, there are landmarks. Yeah, I think that um, securing, securing the right to vote 
for white males 21 and over was at, a, at an incredible landmark because white males 21 and over for centuries didn't have the, quote, right to vote. And then it becomes a question of extending. And can the uh, population withstand the extending and live with the extension and, and, and become better off? And it seems to me that the answer is yes, through the through the 15th Amendment and uh, through the 19th Amendment. Um, I'm not so sure, actually, and I'm saying this to be partly provocative. I don't think that lowering the voting age from 21 to 18 has somehow enhanced, uh, become an important landmark in terms of securing the right to vote for all Americans. I certainly think that securing across the country the right to vote for African-Americans and securing the right to vote for women is uh, important, but I wouldn't consider uh, among the most important landmarks lowering the voting age from 21 to 18 to be among those most important landmarks compared to uh, to, to women and, uh, and, and, and African-Americans who could vote, by the way, uh, depending on on where they resided, as as too by the way could eighteen year olds depending on where they resided. So I think the two most important landmarks in terms of the right to vote would be the fifteenth and the nineteenth amendments. What do you consider to be the most important issue still facing Americans in regard to the right to vote? I think the and, and why I think the issue is the most important. Um, issue for me is this link between civic education and civic engagement. Why would we want to keep expanding, expanding the right to vote, making it easier and easier for the right to vote if we do not expand the knowledge that it takes to exercise a, a, a sensible vote? And that means that those of us who love civic education need to join with those of us who love civic participation to come up with a nonpartisan approach to democracy. To go back to the first question, democracy is not the default form of political organization. It requires a high degree of citizen understanding and participation to work. That's right, just lowering the voting age or saying that you can just get you can vote because you register and, and get a driver's license is, is answering one issue. And that issue is how do we get the, the greater turnout? But it is not necessarily answering the issue of being informed. And I realize through American history that a lot of tests of your knowledge, one's knowledge, has been used to discriminate and exclude people from participating. But because it has been used to exclude people from participating doesn't mean to say that civic education is in, instinctively or automatically unimportant or discriminatory. Um, that's why we're in this business. And that's a very, very tricky line. And, and what started off for me as, uh, as, 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 a quite, as something that I didn't quite see how it fit in to the six sessions that we were doing. Namely, 
what challenges might face American constitutional democracy in the 21st century. That's I, that I can see. But going off on human rights and, and, and international law and all of that stuff didn't seem to me to, to, to fit the model. But the more I thought about it this week as I was preparing for a discussion, and the more I've talked with you over this 45 minutes, the more I see the importance of this session, which I did not see at the beginning. And I look forward very much to the questions which you might have in mind, particularly with regard to fleshing out civic education and civic participation. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Dr. Lloyd. Uh, I have a list of a few questions to ask you. Um, at the beginning, you mentioned global citizenship, and the first question deals with that topic. Um, are we moving towards a more globalized citizenship? And if we are, what are the benefits and detriments to that sort of system? Well, um, well, yeah, there is always that. There's always that pull. Um, religion has that universal pull and suggests that, that maybe political borders separate people. And it doesn't matter that whether you're Catholic or Muslim, there's a, there's a sense that um, who we are are defined beyond borders. So yeah, we're probably, and as the world grows smaller and technology gets good, there is this pull away from the local neighborhood. So yeah, I think it's becoming more and more, which means it's more and more important. <clears throat> and, and the reason why it's more important is because there's something, I think, within human nature that attracts us to localism. Even, let me give you an example. Um, even, even say, let's just take the left for the moment with, with, with the idea of we're all one, we're all one people, we are the world, um, we're all part of humanity. When I go to the store uh, uh, and, and, and buy produce, I see on the shelves, grown locally, grown organic. Why don't they say grown universally? Grown, who, who cares about this? So there's a certain, it seems to me that even though we are moving toward more and more an attraction to a, a universal a universalism, which seems to me religion is involved in and has always been involved in. And you can see the Pope's family, uh, visits and, and that. It seems that we're also trapped because there's a certain part of our human nature which is grounded in the family or grounded in the locality from which we come. And there is an attachment to the locality and you can see that not just in terms of which college we went to, which sports team we won. We root, oh my goodness, I'm this a member of my family. So I think this is an issue which is going to continue for, as far as I can see, for a long, long time. The, uh, the, to what extent are we associated with universalism and to what extent are we associated with particularism? I think the particularism is coming under more and more attack. The more the, the more the world has technology, which in which we can, for example, I just give you a, a simple example. Which I, um, I when when I was a young man, I would listen at, at nine thirty at night. I would listen to shortwave radio and listen 
uh, might surprise you. Listen to cricket from the West, in the West Indies, playing Australia, you know, playing in Melbourne. And I would listen, and that would be a kick for me. Two nights ago, I could watch cricket on on uh, on, on the Cricket Channel uh, here, uh, listen, watching the West Indies against Sri Lanka. There's nothing. There's no, it's, it's totally unlocal. So, yeah, the world is open up. But do I still root for a team? And the answer is yes, I still root for the West Indies. Uh, would I like to see the West Indies win? Yeah. But am I pleased that I can see the game? Yes. Would I see the game if we were if 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 we were simply rooted in the past without technology moving us to universalism? Absolutely not. Uh, could I see that without commercials? No. Do, do, does that mean that I favor commercials all over the place? No, I'd rather I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather delete the commercials. But I think that this is this 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 challenge that we have. And yes, I do think we're going more universal. But I think it's extremely difficult for us to give up certain particularities. And that's the thing about civic civic education. There's no general theory of education. There's a theory of civic education because it's. Because it's a paradox. Education seems to be general and civic seems to be particular. OK, and I think this next question goes off of what you just mentioned and it uh, asks, have we lost local citizenship? And uh, it mentions an earlier session talking about the local juries that we no longer know each other as neighbors. How does this change citizenship and civic civic education? Well, I think it. Uh... Uh, yeah, greatly. The answer is greatly. If we go back to uh, like Tocqueville, he thought that juries, even though they may render not the finest decision, but what they did render was a decision of your peers. So that was a form of democracy involved and they had to live with it. They had to live with it in their own community. And so did you if you were the accused. You had to live with it. And it's a tough decision. And what it does is show actually the great difficulty of democratic government. That is self-government isn't easy. And somehow we seem to think it is. And that's why I still hope that we want to get some questions dealing with civic education and civic participation, because because civic education and civic participation challenges those who think that so there is an easy fix for this. The jury system requires hard work. A lot of Americans want to get out of that hard work and 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 issue an excuse as to why they cannot serve on a jury. And there's a certain cynicism, and I understand that cynicism, and I mentioned it last week, that somehow you sit there as a prospective juror and you see the lawyers battling it out, and what are they looking for? They're not looking for truth. They're looking for somebody who will vote in their in their favor. And so there's a certain cynicism, which 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 certainly has been introduced to the to, to the jury system. There's also a certain cynicism that localism means prejudice. Well, yeah, well, the answer is yeah. Lo localism does mean a certain prejudice. That is, I am in, I, I am discriminating in favor of my local community. I like my local schools um, rather than somewhat distant. So that's, that, that the question is an extremely good question. 
and very difficult to answer. And I think that in link, as you pointed out, it's linked to the first question. And I think the linkage is we are in tension. We're in tension between do we become one sort of mass or uniform folks, whether it's across America or across the globe, or do we retain some vital, robust localism, which the rest of the world or the rest of the nation will tolerate? And I think that's tough, but it's important. But it is the important question. Okay, and I think the the next one talks about civic participation versus civic engagement. Uh, the question is, how do we make voting not about simply just numbers, because that's what tends to be looked at to see how successful an election was? Well, I don't think you can get away, well, in one sense, I don't think you can get away from that because if consent of the governed and majority rule are important concepts, and they are, then you cannot, you cannot run away from numbers. Uh, numbers are going to be matter, going to matter. You can't say, well, one person showed up to vote. Therefore, three people showed up to vote and voted two to one. Therefore, it's a majority. I mean, there's a certain, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't seem to make sense. So you want enough show up to show up and participate and be informed that it doesn't become simply a rigged aristocracy or a rigged oligarchy. But at the same time, I don't think you need 100%. And... Um, and I don't think, I think the question is very good. I don't think that there's a numerical definition which says we are in good shape if 60% vote. If there's 60% who don't know what they're doing, vote. And the 40% who do know what is going on, don't vote. We're in trouble. I wouldn't, I mean, we, that might be a democratic act, but it's not a decent democratic act. So um, I think that the person who asked this question is, 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 it's asking a very good question. Is there a quantitative measure for saying we are healthy or not healthy? Well, in a certain sense, I've said yes. I think if only 20% of the electorate show up at elections, I don't think that's healthy because it becomes very difficult to argue that the governed have consented to a certain policy. But I don't think you have to have 80, 90, 100%. And what do you need? I don't know that it has to be answered numerically. I think it uh, is an ongoing issue, and I don't think you can ever be finally settled. But that's why that that's why teachers of what we do will never be unemployed. Okay, and uh, this question just came in, uh, but I think it goes on the same idea of civic education that you've been stressing. What role does character education play in civic education and how should and could teachers develop civic virtue in students? Well, uh, no, very good. Very good question. I think the, the question of character for a long time within the American system, both public schools and private, I mean, government finance schools and 
than private religious schools was that was that character character building was important. I certainly knew it was important for me, even though I didn't grow up within the American system. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not cheat, everything like that. So I think character in in the most basic ways. And we had, um, you know, assemblies in which there were prayers and whatnot. And I think that it built character. I don't know how much it stuck with people, but it was certainly part of the understanding that character was important but limited. And let me explain what I mean by, I think I've explained what I mean by important. Let me say why it was important. When a teacher, we had uniforms. Teacher entered the room, we stood up. There was respect for teachers. Now that might have been simply drilled into you that you have to do that. But there is a certain, if you really want to improve civic education and civic participation, we need to encourage respect for those people who were involved in encouraging us in civic education and civic participation. Unfortunately, a lot of folks who are in the academy and in uh, movements don't give a rip about uh, about the community and think that civic education and civic uh, engagement is flipping the finger to the establishment rather than teaching people to have some respect. Uh, and I'm not a I'm not a person who is who, who is overly interested in, in in teaching law and order. What I'm saying is that when I when I grew up, I knew that teachers were respected. I knew that it was precious after World War II to 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 be interested in democratic politics. So that civic education and civic participation were important. I knew that. Um, and I've got off on this so much that if you could repeat the question, it would be very helpful to me to be able to, to bring this home. Okay. Um, let's see, uh, what does character education, how does that play a role in civic education? So I, I pointed out, yeah, character manners in terms of not stealing, not cheating, not doing such and such and such. Not, you don't you don't go for the exams and try to cheat and get the highest score. You don't you 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 don't. So character matters. But we all knew when we were growing up anyway that character was mainly done in the family and in the church and outside of the schools. And the schools were mainly responsible for helping you understand where you were and who you are within the history of mankind and the civic community in which you lived. So that kind of character became important, not the character simply of thou shalt not steal, but the character of thou shalt know thy country. And I think if that's a question of character, which I think it is, then I think civic education and civic participation does deal with civic character and civic well, that's something we haven't explored and i hadn't really thought about it much until this 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 question appeared is there a role for civic character education in america yes i, 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 I we read it every day i mean it means it means for example 
that you don't silence somebody who's speaking. You don't go in there and just show complete disrespect. You don't do those things just because you can or you can get away with it. And, and uh, no, it requires a very good balance between securing your rights and trying to educate others and at the same time learn from them. So character in that sense, I think, is extre still extremely. How does one do that? Man, it is extremely difficult because I've talked with teachers now. This is what I've devoted my whole life to, the, the, the last part of my life. It is extremely important because all the constraints that teachers have in terms of they have to cover so much material within a certain period of time, which suggests that character doesn't matter. They have to do. They have to answer so much such on lesson plans through uh, assessment reports, which to me implies that character doesn't matter. Character is nuance. Um, I didn't realize until the other day that that the first standardized tests in America uh, were the uh, originated with World War One with the U.S. Army trying to figure out who was who was uh, a decent recruit and who was not. They didn't start in the education system. It was an import from outside. And that the country, and I didn't realize this either, that the country who was most famous in the 20th century for developing standardized education was China. And that makes perfect sense now that I know that. But you cannot build character through standardized education. Okay, this next question takes a look at how do we get citizens involved in civic education and participation? Is it the federal government's role to ensure that states do it? Is it the state's job to take initiative to ensure all citizens be involved? Or is it simply just a citizen-driven initiative? Well, again, these questions are very, very good. I wish I could answer it, it, it was number three, that it's the citizens who can just say, listen, this is what we want to do. We put it together, Tocqueville in the 1830s. I mean, this 25-year-old Frenchman, I can't think of another 25-year-old Frenchman who has such a great idea and love for America. Uh, anyway, he's just, he was just very, very insightful. But Americans don't need to wait for some federal government or some intendant or some department of education to come and tell them what to do. Why can't we do it ourselves? So the, I wish that that spirit of localism, volunteerism, community organization in that regard was alive. And that parents say, well, so what do we want to, what, what do we want our students to learn? Uh, and Let's put together a curriculum. It used to be the various church schools who were very important in that. And I think the Catholic Church played a very big part in that. But, you know, they, 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 had a, they have a difficulty now because the number of priests and nuns who used to run the programs are sort of diminishing. And so they have to go out in the private sector so, so that what 
what could pass for a decent education is now more and more difficult, even within the Catholic, even within the Catholic Church. So I would like to believe that you do it locally, that you do it through private associations. But what I fear is that we perhaps have gone so far with regard to the U.S. Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Justice, and various state and local uh, governmental agencies that are now so full of assessments and accreditations that that the te- that teachers are less interested or less capable of being on on the spot dealing with issues that are on a student's mind and having to say instead, well, how do I prepare them for the test? Or how do I prepare them for this assessment? And some administrator, even at universities is gonna come down and say, we need accreditation. So there's an incredible amount of outside force that is being applied to universities and high schools, et cetera, internally, once they accept federal money, and it becomes very, very difficult indeed. And you, and so Title IX, which started off as, to me, a very legitimate program to produce um, reasonably equal uh, funding for women's sports and men's sports, and you can see the impact with women's soccer teams, uh, has come now to be a mode of of, of prosecuting. Um, alleged sexual activity on campus. Now, when when the folks wrote the Title IX, they had not that in mind. So I don't know whether it's... I would like to believe that localism still works. The problem is that, that once, once the federal government and the federal administration, the federal bureaucracy gets involved, it becomes extremely difficult for people to work things out on a personal level. You have to file this form and you have to... So whatever I can do to help teachers within those that very short space of time and that they have to be able to inspire students, that's what I'm after. I don't intend... My, my efforts are not, are not addressed to changing the educational system. I cannot change the educational system. I'm not the person to do it. I don't have the brains. I don't have the stamina. I don't have the patience. I don't have the clout. But what I do have is that if I can properly identify those pockets or those areas where I can inspire teachers within that area to give the students the hope about thinking, about curiosity, about education, that that's where I can make an impact. I can't make an impact on a school board. I, I don't have I don't have that delusion at all. Okay. Um, next question. Over the history of our country, there has been a steady shift towards more democracy. For example, more people are eligible to vote. Uh, there's an increasing use of initiatives and referendums. Do you think that this trend will continue? Uh, for example, the elimination of the Electoral College has been talked about time and time again. And what effect do you think this will have on our country? Well, what is interesting about that question is that the initial progressives 
in the late 19th century and early 20th century who made that argument, we need to make our country more democratic. And they did it through initiatives, et cetera, did not go after the Electoral College. They went after the state legislatures and the Congress, and they largely succeeded. They looked upon the executive branch, both the governor and the president, however elected, as somehow the administrative solution to the difficulties that lobbyists and behind the scenes politicians had created. And I think we were, I think that was a major sort of breakthrough. But then I think the presidency has become so central in our lives now that the electoral college itself has become an issue. Whereas it wasn't, I mean, that we could tolerate the electoral college as long as power went to the president. But now it's become a huge issue of, 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 of great importance. And I, I, I really think this, this raises the, a very, very important fundamental question that we need to, we need civic education and civic participation on. We need civic participation, but not ideological. And we need civic education and prudent action. And that is the Electoral College was a compromise back in 1787. And the compromise was we don't want the state legislatures to simply elect the president. We don't want we don't want the Congress to elect the president alone. Across such a, this is their view, across such a vast country as the United States back in 1787, we cannot imagine how corruption wouldn't take place if you just had direct vote. So what we need is to be able somehow to include all the, there's a phrase that's used these days that somehow I keep forgetting, thank goodness, stakeholders. We need to be able to include all the stakeholders in the election of the president. So who is involved in it? We've got state legislatures. We've got political parties at the local level. We have political parties at the national level. We've got Congress involved. We've got everybody. That is the election of the president has become sort of an an event in which all the compromises that have occurred within America come. And therefore, if you don't like the outcome, you're going to name, you're going to say this ain't fair, which means that you're going to say that what, one part of those compromise, that part of that compromise isn't, isn't right. For example, for example, there's a huge, huge study now, which suggests that, the Electoral College is responsible for um, promoting uh, slave-holding, um, supporting presidents. And if I, I mean, when I look at that, I'm thinking, look, no one would beat George Washington. And the second president is John Adams. He's clearly not a slaveholder. The, the, the only pure case that you can mention is Thomas Jefferson. And that's 1800. After that, the Virginia dynasty kicked in. And then in 1824, you get John Quincy Adams, who is no slaveholder. 
right? And then you get Jackson, we are to another era. But the, what, what I'm getting at is that the, the poor electoral college has been, has had to, has had to survive so many critiques of what is wrong with America. And my simple answer is the Electoral College is part of a compromise which says that we're partly national and partly federal. You don't like that compromise, amend it. Don't try to undermine it through slippery means. Just amend it. Say we don't want we don't want to have uh, Alaska having two votes in the in 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 the Senate and. And, and therefore having two votes for president. Be why? Because we, are, because we are a whole nation. We're not just a nation of states. And that issue has to be, has to be answered. And I don't think it's been answered properly. Well, thank you for answering these questions, Dr. Lloyd, and for your lecture this evening. I just want to let everyone know that the web address will uh, quickly be put in the chat window where you can learn more details of the credit option for this series. If you want to do the two lessons or the lesson plan based on the two documents, it should have popped up right now. And I also want to give uh, before we end the floor to Bob Lemming just to give him a few moments to speak with you. Just let you know you're you're still muted. Okay. Yep. That? Great, I can hear you now. Okay, great, thanks. Well, I want to uh, thank all the teachers uh, for uh, joining in tonight, and hopefully, uh, the last uh, five weeks, this, this six-week program has gone pretty quick. And I also want to thank uh, the Ashbrook Center for uh, working on this, especially uh, Jeremy Gipton and and Jason Ross, and then. Obviously, we want to thank Professor Gordon Lloyd for his insight on uh, these hearing questions that we've been dealing with. Um, I always learn something uh, when I listen to Gordon Lloyd. Uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, you have as well. I would I would encourage you, uh, the teachers, to email me. Uh, it's easy, lemming1m at civiced.org, and let me know what you think of this uh, this this webinar. I'd like to encourage. Uh, Gordon Lloyd to to uh, do again at some point, maybe on some other topics uh, that we can discuss. But I think this is a a modern way, if you will, and I kind of don't like to use that term, but it's a way to learn. Uh, I, I, I think it's always best to be in the presence of Gordon Lloyd. Uh, that's always more fun. But I think uh, this is a way that we ought to, to capitalize on in terms of, of learning across this big nation. And as he talked about with the answers to those questions, which really, as you know, the questions are not designed uh, for yes and no answers. They're designed for, for young people to engage in and to then come up with what they believe is a correct way of thinking about it based on primary documents based on history and not just based on, well, this is what I think. And I think that's what the We the People program does. It encourages young people to, to uh, learn. And then obviously I think that what I like about unit six is that it says it's not enough just to learn. And I think Professor Lloyd captured that. Uh, that's great. And in fact, it's a, pre, it's a prerequisite for action. Uh, uh, many times in my life, 
I've been to, uh, I can recall, in 1973 going to Washington, D.C. for an impeach Richard Nixon rally uh, in, in, in D.C. And uh, I was 19 years old. And it, it, I was so frustrated, though, because the organizers uh, of the event had no facts, nothing behind them. It was all slander. Uh, it was statements like, you know, Richard Nixgum and Adolf Nixwine. And I thought, I, I don't want to be a part of this. I wasn't, I, it was a very enlightening time for me that these people certainly didn't have the We the People program before they organized some event where they were trying to influence people on the mall in Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July. And so I bring it to today and I still see people in the streets with some cause and I appreciate that. But I remind you that when the young children marched during the civil rights movement, and Birmingham. They just didn't walk out of the 16th Street Baptist Church and walk down the street. They had classes. They were prepared. They understood the First Amendment. They knew about natural rights philosophy. They had heard uh, Dr. King and others talking about that. They were prepared to go to jail, but they were prepared of what they were doing and why they were doing it was based on the Constitution. You know, Dr. King never said, he never uh, throughout the Constitution, he didn't throw out the Declaration of uh, the, the Declaration of Independence. He said, "Let us in." Uh, I love this document. All men are created equal means something, and so I, I hope that the generations that are on the streets today, which is a, which is a sign, a good sign. Except that I wish they were more prepared, and I know that young people in our programs are, and they're the ones who I would, would respect whatever opinion they have about an issue to be well prepared before they hit the streets. And I think that's the message that we're talking about today uh, in terms of how difficult it is to live in a democratic republic uh, when you, 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 you expect to have enlightened citizens. So I bring it back to the teachers. Uh, I, uh, I'll leave you with this. I'm somewhat famous for saying that that students are victims to what what students are victims to what teachers don't know, and I think that because your attendance in these webinars, uh, you gave up your time uh, to do this uh, for six weeks now. Um, you may not have hit them, hit them all, but uh, that's okay. They're going to be taped and, and available for you. But that tells me that you have an interest. And, and, and uh, allowing and encouraging your own students to understand the democratic and principles that are necessary for enlightened engagement. And I think that's what we want. It's not, as, as Gordon Lloyd said, it's not necessarily the number, it's, it's the impact that the individual has based on uh, their background of history and how government works. So with that, I wanna, again, I wanna thank you all uh, and good luck with the rest of your semester. And please uh, if, feel free to send me an email about what you thought about the webinars. And I'd love to uh, discuss these ideas with you further. Th thanks so much.